Welcome to episode three of Folk Tunes and Englishness, a three-part series of podcasts in which we talk about English traditional music, its history, and how it's played and passed on today. I'm Dr. Alice Little. I'm a research fellow in the Faculty of Music at the University of Oxford. I've been working with the English Folk Dance and Song Society to find out more about the 18th century tune books that they have at the Vaughan Williams Memorial Library. These tune books are collections of tunes, both in handwritten manuscript and in print. Today our intro music is The Female Rake, recorded by Cohen Braithwaite Kilcoyne. In episode one, we talked about the history of English folk music, and in episode two, about this repertoire in performance today. In this third episode, we're going to be thinking about the edges of English folk music, the geographical borders, the regional variations, and also the conceptual lines that English folk musicians don't cross. We're also going to talk about English folk tunes in the context of nationalism and race. I'm joined by a fantastic group of musicians and researchers. Cohen Braithwaite Kilcoyne. Hello. Nicola Beasley. Hi. Stuart Hardy. Stuart Hardy. Tom Kitching. My name's Tom Kitching. And Marie Bashiru. My name is Marie Bashiru. To talk about Englishness, nationalism and regionalism, and where English folk tunes sit in a global context. My name is Cohen Braithwaite Kilcoyne. I'm an English folk musician and singer. I play the Melodian and Anglo concertina. I've been a professional full-time folk musician for about four years now, working as a performer and as an educator. You said you play the Anglo concertina. There's also the English concertina. Could you explain the difference? Yeah, the primary difference between an English concertina and an Anglo concertina is that the English concertina plays the same note on both bellows directions versus the Anglo concertina has two different notes for each button, one note you get on the push and one note you get on the pull. The reason why we've got these two terms is English concertina was the system of concertina that was invented in England by Sir Charles Wheatstone. And the Anglo concertina, it's actually an abbreviation of Anglo-German because it was a hybrid between the mechanics and the design of the Wheatstone English and the fingering system of the German concertina. So when we got that sort of hybrid in the mid-19th century, the term Anglo-German was applied to that. And then in this sort of early 20th century, around the time of the First World War, calling things German became very unpopular. So we've gone and called them Anglos and it's just stuck. So we've already touched on nationalism even before we talk about the repertoire. So you define yourself as an English musician. Do you draw geographical lines around the things that you play? Are there any lines that you don't cross? I always feel a little bit uncomfortable about playing even Scottish and Irish music and broader into Europe and and into America and just about any culture of music that isn't English. I always feel that I'm sort of doing it a disservice. Vaughan Williams had a quote about that idea of sort of lisping in a foreign tongue. It feels unnatural. Does that mean that you think with regard to English tunes that only English people should be playing them? I don't think at all that you need to be an English person to play English music and enjoy English music. And I don't even think you have to be an English person to perform it and to do it well. It's more about perfecting a craft rather than any ideas of sort of heritage and and that sort of stuff, yeah. So tell me about the track that you're going to share with us. We heard the female rake at the start of this episode, and now we're going to hear the drunken drummer. They're both off of my new solo album, which is called Rakes and Misfits. The first tune, Female Rake, comes from 
an American publication, Elias Howell's The Musical Companion, a series of books of popular tunes, dance tunes, song airs, light operatic pieces. And, you know, it's an American publication, but I don't feel uncomfortable with playing that. I think partly because there's so much fluidity between the English and the American repertoire. Partly because it's a jig as well and I feel comfortable playing that in an English style. And the second tune, The Drunken Drummer, comes from Michael Raven's 1000 English Country Dance Tunes, that book. Although, you know, Raven doesn't quote the sources for most of them and actually the only source pre-Raven that I've seen for that tune is a Scottish book, so I think that's interesting. I'm Nicola Beasley. I'm a folk musician, an educator and a PhD candidate working in the field of English folk and traditional music. I spoke to Nicola Beasley and she recorded a statement for us to include about her work. It's really hard to define what the English tradition is and this is partly because there isn't really a singular English tradition or style. In the same way that there isn't a singular Scottish style of playing, it's regional and it differs, sometimes wildly, in the different regions in each country. The regional voice of individual musicians is more of a driving force in the preservation and dissemination of English folk music. However, there are certain musical examples present throughout tune playing, for example, in England. Musical elements that we perhaps take for granted, such as the well-known 8 by 8 bar structure of many dance tunes, but not all dance tunes, and other decorative structures such as ornamentation or double stopping on the fiddle or even down to the speed and common note duration of tunes played in England. All of these elements that we're aware of as musicians on a conscious and subconscious level that are ingrained in our learnt cultural knowledge of the scene act as a toolbox from which musicians can choose from to create new material. It could be argued that this toolbox of traditional elements acts as both an aid to the creative process for musicians to use at will or to actively ignore and create something that does the opposite of what is expected. I asked Nick if she would play an example of a tune with English characteristics and she played Morgan Rattler. For those who are listening carefully, we also heard this tune played by Matt Coatesworth in episode one. The structures that it follows are kind of your expected call and response, which is a really good example of... Um, yeah, the template for tunes, I guess. Um, the way I play it is quite um, dotted, I guess. It's swung. Um, skippy is sometimes how I've heard English jigs being described as. Um, it's not written out, usually with the dots, I don't think. I think you'd write it out straight, but as part of English style, you would probably play it more swung. We're going to come on to regional identities next, but before we do, I asked Nicola to reflect on the use of archival materials or historical field recordings. Can these sources help us define what English folk tunes are? She sent me the following response. These records are very problematic in many ways. Not only is it a singular snapshot in time and can in no way demonstrate what came before, or in some cases what came after, we cannot possibly assume that single snapshot is in any way 
correct or representative of what English music was. The bias present in those collectors, biases of race, gender and class, many of the things, means that a lot of what we may have classed as traditional material was never considered in the first place. We may never fully know what English music was back then, and due to a world of increasing connectivity, the edges surrounding English folk music have just got more blurry. However, it is the voice of individual musicians and can both innovate and preserve the traditional ideas that we value as a scene. We can develop English music further by encouraging more new and innovative voices to be welcomed into our world and not to be afraid to change things, as I am sure musicians playing folk and traditional music from England have always done. I'm Stuart Hardy. I am what is known as a portfolio musician, which basically means if you'll pay me money and it's connected to music, I'll do it. I write, I perform, I teach, and just about anything else that comes along. My speciality is the fiddle, and I do music from anywhere, but particularly specialising in the music of the northeast of England and the surrounding area. At heart, what is distinct about it is what is distinct about music from any region it's to do with its history it's to do with its landscape it's to do with the language and it's to do with the people i mean all music is intensely personal but i think folk music in particular is intensely personal particularly given its roots in an oral tradition northumbria is so close to scotland geographically is there any sort of musical border between the two Personally, I tend to push back against the idea of hard lines in anything cultural. In geographic extremes, you can see stark contrasts. But to make a hard line between the Scottish tradition and the English tradition as it is played in the North, I think is much, much more difficult. Not least because there is a long tradition of musicians going north and south across the border. Still, we've got some great Scottish musicians who live here in the northeast, you know, the likes of Brian McNeil and Katrina MacDonald and Chuck Fleming, to name but three. And they're wonderful musicians, and they've all had a huge influence on the way that the fiddle is played in this area. And that's just fiddle players. And that history of the movement of people north and south goes back hundreds of years. We know this from census records, and we know this from literature as well, written records of it. I do passionately think that there is such a thing as English music and an English sound. But, you know, to see it or to hear it, you need to step a long way back. And then as you go in, it becomes, as I say, much more individualistic. Could you speak a little about regional identity in the northeast, musically or otherwise? There is a very strong regional identity. It would be true to say that there are plenty of people in the area who would regard themselves as George's or Mackham's first and English second. And equally, it being a border area, the you know, defining yourself by what you're not is not an uncommon trait. And so on this side of the border, we're not Scottish. And on the other side of the border, they are definitely not English. And the Scottish borders has always been a very fertile breeding ground for Scottish nationalism. The Scots Nats party has always been strong in that area. And when there was the referendum, some of the most vociferous arguments for maintaining the union, I heard, were espoused here in the northeast. Whereas when I was down in London, it seemed that people were a lot more apathetic about the whole thing. But that could have just been the people I was personally talking to, of course. There is a very defined regional identity, but I would say it is as much we're not Scottish as it is, well, we're not like the rest of England. 
that's the heart of what we're talking about is the further out you go, the more generalized and homogenous culture seems. But the further in you go, the more personal and individual it is. So yes, somebody playing a fiddle in Northumberland might just think, well, I'm just a fiddle player. But somebody from Cornwall will see somebody whose style is very, very different from their own. But I think we would all recognise that even though there's a distinct regional identity, border music has been influenced by music from elsewhere. We mentioned Cornwall. I mean, to my ears, a lot of the Cornish music has some little Breton connection. And it's wonderful because it it has those connections, but it's not Breton music. It has that kind of flavour about it. And there's some of the music up here where you think there's something very Scandinavian going on there, or very often something very Scottish going on there. It's those influences coming through. We're going to move across England now, from the northeast to the northwest. My name's Tom Kitching. I am a musician and a travel writer. I play the fiddle. I would describe my style as being English, but I think that's what we're going to talk about is what that really means. I grew up in Macclesfield in Cheshire. Yeah, I live in Manchester these days. I'm now one mile across the traditional county border from Cheshire, so I've moved a terribly long way. I grew up in Macclesfield, learnt to play the fiddle in the Harrington Arms session on a Friday night in Gorsworth. So what is Northwest fiddle style? Can you define it? And in the Northwest, there's this huge split as to what the Northwest actually is, because some parts of it are very, very ancient, like Cheshire and the northern half of Lancashire are very feudal sort of counties that go back hundreds and hundreds of years. And yet the great industrial belt that runs from Liverpool through to Manchester and, and all that was colonised effectively during the Industrial Revolution. And the people that came there came from outside. You have people coming from Scotland, Wales and Ireland, making up the places like Wigan, Liverpool and Manchester, the huge immigrant communities. And they would have brought completely different styles with them. So even if we had anything approaching an archive recording for a fiddle player in the Northwest, it would be a mistake to think it was in any way representative of the whole area. There is a huge volume of material from the Northwest in manuscript form. And there's a fellow called Jamie Knowles who's done a brilliant job of actually compiling a lot of that into books. What there isn't, particularly with regard to fiddle playing, is anything recorded. There's no archive material. So there is virtually not there's certainly nothing you can listen to when it comes to trying to decide what the Northwest fiddle sound is. I mean the handful of archive recordings there are of traditional fiddle players in this country are of players in vastly different parts of it. I think they're pretty much all down south. Does that affect what you play? Interested in harking back anyway, because the whole point of traditional performance and practice in general is to be evolutionary. Now, one of my big mantras these days is that it's only traditional if it's evolving, and if you're doing it the same, then it's reenactment. Can you tell us about your Busking England project? I spent 18 months busking around England. I guess it was an artistic response to Brexit. I wanted to find out what being English was all about and why we all felt so differently about it. I wanted to find out the England that had given rise to it without necessarily asking about Brexit itself. So I wanted to get a level underneath it. And busking seemed like the best way to do it. When you start a project like this and you want to learn more about your country, you say, well, what are my resources? Uh, My resources were a fiddle and a knackered Volvo. When I was busking around England, in a sense, it wasn't really necessarily an exploration of the music per se. It was really saying, what can the music do for me in terms of understanding my own country? And I was trying to draw conclusions about England more generally than necessarily about the music. When you write a book trying to get to the heart of what a country is, narratively, you want to end up in a place where you can say, and I found the real England and here it is, and then describe what it is. Uh, I wasn't able to do that. I found that England was so just tremendously varied and that the overlap 
in the experience of life between, say, people living in a Durham coal mining village and Cotswold village was basically zero. I came to understand that England is colossally varied and that each one of us may have our own completely valid experience, but to understand how wildly different other people's experience of being English is and that theirs is just as valid. So I'm not sure that tells us necessarily anything about the music, Apart from if English traditional music is to have any relevance, it has to understand that extraordinary breadth of what it is to be English in the first place. And any attempt to narrow it down too much is going to exclude people. If you want to find out more about Tom's Busking England project, the book and the album are available on Tom's website, tomkitching.co.uk. track that I would really like you to play a little bit of is one I wrote called Belt Driven, which is my homage to the great industrial machines that are mouldering away within forgotten factories uh, in my native northwest. My name is Marie Bashiru. I am a singer, songwriter, producer, and a researcher. Most recently completed a research residency with the English Folk and Dance Song Society in London, England. My research residency with the English Folk and Dance Song Society looked at the cross-cultural exchange and impact of folk music within empire, specifically looking at the era of blackface minstrelsy in the 19th and 20th century, and also shining a light on the mento music of Jamaica, which is considered Jamaica's original folk music. I've just been talking to Tom Kitching about English folk tunes and Brexit. I wonder if your research has led you to reflect on folk music and English nationalism at all. I think folk music will always matter to English national identity, really just as any folk music of a nation will hold a really relevant part of the cultural identity. We see even in the first folk revival of the late 1800s, you know, into the 1900s, uh, we see kind of like those leaders of like Cecil Sharp really believing that folk music held the key to national identity from understanding where we've come from with the context of where we are now. It's a music of community and a music of celebration and reflection and lament and admonishing. 
it's a social glue that I think is really necessary for any nation to be able to celebrate and recognize, you know, the tenets of what make up that culture, you know, the sum of their parts. Would you play us one of your songs? This tune is a song that I wrote in 2020, not long after the murder of George Floyd in America. Somewhat of a reluctant tune, but it's um, it's a dialogue between myself and the world and somewhat of a kind of preemptive story of what has been happening and what will happen if um, that reciprocity isn't given. And the name of the song is Reciprocity. And this is the demo version I recorded at home. English music's uh, key characteristics, particularly within folk, you kind of hear the parallel mirroring between instrument and voice. And that's often quite a common tool, I think, to probably drive the point, the story home a little bit more. Um, You know, it's like you're saying one thing and you're saying it twice, essentially, with both the instrument and the voice. I think the way that I use this in my own music, it can be quite an automatic thing. You don't really think about what you're doing in terms of when you're writing it. Like you are mirroring, for example, the harmonic nature of like the chords that you're playing in your voice. You're mirroring that over. But at the same time, you might want to emphasize a certain line. It's always a kind of like a really good tool to use in my own personal songwriting to kind of mirror that with my voice. We've been talking in this series about Englishness, and today we've talked a lot about regional styles. I wonder if you can help us take a step back and gain a global perspective on English folk music, particularly thinking about race in England. I think that we do see English music historically being hostile to non-whites, even through the era of Queen Elizabeth's rule and her mandate to deport all the black and wolves who were black Africans resident in Britain at that time. And the irony of this disdain and hostility, when really not that long before then, you know, in the 16th century, we see this influx of black Africans before the slave trade, before the importation of sugar and tobacco. And we are seeing a phenomenon, you know, in the UK of these black Africans playing in army band militias, you know, and this kind of fascination with the skill and the expertise that they're bringing to these court bands. And actually, that was such an impactful thing that we even see composers such as Mozart claiming that their 
instrumentation and this new way of creating harmony orchestrally definitely impacted their writing. And so there's this very clear impact of black African people contributing to the music climate of Britain. Can you tell us a little about how blackface minstrelsy first came to England and how this music and these people were received? That form of blackface minstrelsy came from Appalachian America, from black mountain folk who were descendants of African slaves, who actually brought the banjo over to North America, to the Appalachian Mountains, who passed that on to white mountain folk. So there's this transfer of music, of course, because that's what music does. There's always a cultural exchange when it comes to, you know, the settling of peoples in an area and what they brought with them. But unfortunately, this often is overlooked and actually not only taken, but actually adapted and used as a tool for oppression and dehumanization, which is what we did see predominantly very much so in the era of blackface minstrelsy for the 19th and the 20th centuries. And do you see this changing? I would definitely say that we live in an age now of boundless possibilities when it comes to the sharing and the transmission of music thanks to the digital age that we're in. And I think for this reason it means that there definitely is probably less hostility that can be enabled, I think, towards non-whites because so many non-whites are making the music that we all love and celebrate. And that's not something that can necessarily be um, hidden and concealed easily. So we're seeing and we're recognizing the creators of this music. And uh, I think that's definitely helped to embrace other cultures more readily. But yeah, I do think we still have a long way to go in terms of recognition, you know, in terms of origin of ideas and origin of certain types of music. There's still a lot of work to be done to really kind of give credit where credit is due. I definitely do see things changing, hopefully, in the right direction. Thank you to our guests, Cohen Braithwaite-Kilcoyne, Nicola Beasley, Stuart Hardy, Tom Kitching and Marie Bashiru. You're listening to Old Molly Oxford from Tom Kitchen's album, Seasons of Change. We've reached the end of our third and final episode of Folk Tunes and Englishness. If you want to listen to the whole series again, you can find it in all the usual podcast places. If you want to find out more about these topics, or about my knowledge exchange work with the University of Oxford and the English Folk Dance and Song Society, Google Knowledge Exchange and follow links to Oxford's Torch website. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review this podcast, which will help others to find it. This podcast was produced by Birdlime Media.